brothers in Mississippi, and all three of them were younger than himself. So we wanted to see that the image died. He heard that I was going, and the connection between Emmett and I, when we moved to Chicago, Summit Argo, so that him and he, he didn't have any siblings, so he had activities of going fishing and all the fish. She always took me along to fill in. So he found out that I was going to Mississippi. And he wanted to go. And they fought about it as it depicted in the uh, play. They did not want him to go south. Go south. One thing was missing that Emmy had a very, very bad stomach. Every day, all day, he stuttered real bad. And uh, so he fought and he pushed and he loved pranks and loved jokes and never had a dull day in his life. They said it's not going to work in Mississippi. Normally, when you went south, if you went into the stores, you went with an adult so they could be able to kind of supervise you. In this case, this time it didn't happen. Either. So they finally decided to let him go and get on the train. Sunday, and late August, in the south, it's cotton picking time. Everybody went to the field, put babies on the side of the pool, put them in the field out the cotton field. We started walking. Walking, we had a job. That's the backdrop of Mississippi and the south, other places. So, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we went up to the store. And so many stories and told about what happened. Anybody ever seen the eyes on the yes. yes. My cousin that told that story was not there at all. <laughs> not there at all. And the story went viral. It just went all over. It's a very helpless feeling when something goes out that's not right and you try to get it back. I was not a significant player in early stages. I go now, but there was my grandfather, Moe's right, there was his mother, Mamie Teal. So I was not interviewed until 30 years later about what happened at the store. And Rich Samuels came to, uh, he was there in Chicago and he met Mamie Teal. I don't want to go through all the details. He met her and he decided to want to do a documentary on her son, Emmett Teal. So this is 1985, uh, 1985, 30 years after the event. So we told our story, and what hurt me or bothered me was that when I told my story, they said, we are alleged. I alleged, I'm eyewitness. Mark Twain said I witnessed with the story, the story. But people had told our story that wasn't there. And it was believable. It was never, never that they alleged. And I can remember reading Bradford Huey. Anybody remember Bradford Huey? He wrote the Look magazine when I was 16. And I said, how can this man say what he's saying about this? How could he say that? And it hurt me so bad, and it's still powerful today. Still etched in my mind. They say Amy stood up against them and said, we're not afraid of you. And at the river, and they said they had to make an example of them and the other things that they said. 
The story was always he got what he deserved. Never about due process. Sure, he, he violated a Southern morality, a Southern way of living. But it was never about the tragedy, the how he suffered, how he was screaming, and, and how that his body was just broken. I got a book coming out. We're going to put all those forensic reports in. It was always kind of like, kind of making me think about Hitler when he did the Jews in. First, he had to portray them as enemies. Amy was portrayed, 14-year-old kid, just turned 14, back during that time, as an enemy. And in those days, it's hard to believe, but you had no protection whatsoever. Amy was not the first person that was killed. They had sanctuary cities. Anybody know what a sanctuary city is? Sundown cities. What about sundown cities? He had to be out of town by sundown. He could be killed or beaten. I'm from Illinois. They had uh, 13 sundown cities in Mississippi. They had 100 in Illinois. They call it up north. So this is kind of backdrop that we face. And my father, on one occasion, had uh, just kind of give you a little paint a picture of what it was like. And I go to schools and some kids, they just say, you should have done something. So from 1955 to 1985, they made us ashamed of it. White said he got what he deserved. The spirit of America was he got what he deserved. And the black people demonized because we didn't do anything. So that's the kind of life I lived for 30 years. Then all of a sudden there's an interest in the story. We're here. That would never happen between 1955 and 1985. Never would have happened. So all of a sudden the atmosphere changed. And changes can't come about. We'll talk about that later. So on this Wednesday, getting back to the story, we went to this little country store about three miles down from where my grandfather lived. And we're at the store, and there's so many stories being told about what happened. Like I said, eyes on the prize told one story that didn't happen. But I'm just going to tell you what happened. I want to spend a lot of time on that, what others have said. So I went into the store to purchase some things. And while I'm in the store, I can remember very clearly Emmett coming into the store. And he, uh, I looked at him. I said, man, I hope you got his manners together today. Yes, sir. No, sir. They're going to make sure. They, they can tell when from the north. They're going to make sure you said, yes, sir, no, sir. You're going to be killer until you said it right. I said, I hope you got it together. So I left him in the store. My uncle Simon, who was 12 years old, and he was 14 or 16. He went in with him, and nothing happened in the store at all. Absolutely nothing happened. They came out of the store, and pretty soon, Miss Bryant came out of the store. When she came out of the store, she went to her left and to our right, and Emmett whistled. And when he whistled, no one said, let's go. We all just know that he violated one of the um, most uh, threatening laws there was, the whistle that a white woman. They killed people for a reckless eyeball. That's the kind of background. And absolutely nothing. The government, federal government would not get involved at all. Could not 
So we took off going on the railroad and traveling on the railroads and it's dusk, sundown, and there's a car behind us. And this car was coming and we said, they're after us, they're after us. And my uncle sped up. Maurice was driving, he was 16, pulled to the side and jumped out and we ran through the cotton field. And we regrouped at the edge of the world, at the edge of the road. And Emmett begged us not to tell Papa, my grandfather, his great uncle. And uh, we agreed not to tell it. And this girl that named Ruth, she still lives there. I think she's still afraid. The atmosphere hasn't changed a lot in a lot of ways down south when it comes to those kind of things. But we come a long way, we made a lot of progress. She said, this is not over. You're gonna hear some more about this. I know those people. They've done things to people before. It is not over. We're 16, 14, and 12. We didn't give it much thought. Wednesday passed by Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Saturday, everybody goes to the town. And people come from all these little hamlets and little country towns and there in Greenwood, Mississippi. And about 12 o'clock at night, we were going back home, and my uncle Maurice hit a dog, and him and he was crying because he loved animals. He was crying and because he had hit this dog and the dog was yelping, I don't know if he killed the dog or not. So we get home about 12 o'clock and about 2.30 in the morning, I hear these guys talking. They got two boys here from Chicago. We want to talk to the fat boy that did the talking. Said nothing about a whistle. I said, God, these people finna kill us. I'm getting ready to die. I knew my grandfather couldn't help me. I was born and trained in a very religious family, and I just stopped praying. Anybody ever been in a case where death is imminent? Your whole demeanor changed, your whole attitude, and life just changed all at once. And I thought about this man that was out in, out in the ocean in World War II, and the ship was broken up, and there was a shark coming straight for him. He said, God, if you let that, I'm talking about death is imminent. He said, if you let that shot go another way, so I'm going home, I'm going to treat my little brother right. So you think about every wrong you ever done for some reason. He said, then I'm going to marry a young girl, I'm going to treat her right. <laughs> you can be very repentive. You all know what I'm talking about. You don't need no instructor, you don't need no preacher. All you need to do is be in the situation. That's the situation I was in. Of course, he said a shot went another way, he saw someone they go up in the air. So I said, God, they get ready to kill us as dark as a thousand midnights. Anybody ever live in a country where the moon is not shining? You can't see your hand before your face. Friend of mine, one night he had to crawl home feeling the path off. So it was one of those kind of things, stretching my eyes, literally shaking like a leaf on a tree. Four big bedroom house, no hallways between, just straight through to the next room. My grandfather's on the front on the side. It's a former landlord's home, never shack. People always make it sound like the shack was out of shack. You hear them coming and you're stretching your eyes. First you see a flashlight coming. Then you see two men coming, big bald-headed men, pistol in one hand, a flashlight in the other, coming toward me. I close my eyes to be shot. They didn't shoot me open my eyes. Women found him in the third room and it was pure hell in the house. The atmosphere was just so thick and so scary. But you just, it's bad to feel that helpless. 
When they came to me, I couldn't beg for my life. It seemed like I had a stroke. I just couldn't talk, couldn't say anything. Just gonna die peacefully. But as it, God would have it, it didn't happen. And they left with him. My grandmother tried to pay them. Roy Bryant was a little reluctant, but J.W. Milan was not having. He came to take him in, and that's what he did. They left with him. My grandmother would not stay. She had her husband, my grandfather, to take her to Sumner, Mississippi, to her brother's house. It seemed like daylight had never come. I got up and I put my shoes on, close to the woods. I said, they're coming back. And when they pull up, I'm heading for the woods. Terrible, helpless feeling I had at age 16. When daylight finally came, Took me to my, uh, my uncle came with his with his pistol and he put his life on the line to get me to another location. He took me to another uncle in Duncan, Mississippi. And later he said he came inquiring about me there. Of course, they finally got me on the train coming back to Chicago. I was on a troop carrier train, got to Memphis, and I said, man, I, mean, I felt like I was in Chicago then. So I started to the washroom and they started yelling about finna go in the wrong washroom. The white says white and I didn't read it. I said, man, I'm gonna kill before I get home. Terrible feeling, terrible. So I finally got home and got back to Chicago and went to his mother's house and this is a Monday and they still had not found his body. And we went there and stayed with her a while and then finally went on home. And they found his body that Wednesday. He should not have been found, but his, he was weighted down, but his body snagged as he's going downstream, and his foot was bobbing up and down. The young white boy reported that he found him, and when they pulled him out and they put him in the boat, part of his skull fell into the boat while he had been beaten. Of course, history was being made they sent to arrest the two guys that did it. And they were so insulted that they were very upset. They had the sheriff had the audacity to arrest them for protecting the Southern way of life. He wouldn't come, so they said that high sheriff. And black people made progress in every turn where we made progress. There was some white person who had the fire their belly to stand up to do what's right. He said, I'm taking you dead alive. Couldn't get a prosecutor, because everybody became what? Defense attorneys. So they had to send way up to northern Mississippi to get a prosecutor. And that man, he almost had a nervous breakdown. The state police had to protect him day and night, because that was a backdrop. Things have changed. Got a lot of work to do, but we've come a long way from what it was like. And young people I talk to, they can't understand. They cannot fathom what I'm talking about. If you didn't live it, you can't understand it, and you don't know it. So they went to the trial and said, you all are embarrassing us. See, I mean, Tills and most all black people have some European, and our, our families were riddled with mulattoes. They were Irish, Irish descent. He had the gray eyes. So they said, you're an old white man out of the grave. 
you're trying to insult us, embarrass us. Emmett Till is in Detroit with his grandfather. So they won based on that there was not Emmett Till. Of course, you know, 50 years later, we exhumed his body. We, we knew it was him anyway, so they did the DNA, and it was him. We put his body back in the proper place, and they won based on that. And you can't try people. Well, four, four months after they killed him, they, they testified and made $4,000 off of it. And they were, should have had a kidnapping trial. But all you got to turn to a grand jury, and everybody on the grand jury refused to indict. So, and the case is still open, and they're still looking into it now, you know. But uh, 65 years later, you just want the truth to come out. Just want the truth of the mind. So right now, as I say, look, that's being looked into. You know, heard some heard that she, Carolyn, admit that she lied, and I want you to deal with that. But as I said, in the story, it shows how far we've come and how do we get to where we are. How do we get out of slavery? How do we get to the abolitionists? Who were the abolitionists? The Quakers. There were diverse, there were diverse groups that had the fire in them to do what's right. And I talked to uh, young kids, and one guy said, I'll do what's right. I said, you're not going to be liked if you do what's right. Because we have preconceived ideas about a lot of things. In America, we're a melting pot. I listened to the Italians of the day. They were saying, we're not all gangsters. Always people say, we're tired of anybody in our every joke. So we got preconceived, whatever we saw city got a preconceived idea. I said, but when you see this color, you got a preconceived idea, and it doesn't have to be right. So we've come a long way, we've got a lot of work to do, and I hope from tonight that we, we have viewed this. And there's a calling within each of us. All of us have a purpose in life. And we're put here to serve one another. We're here, put here to serve. We're put here to help one another. And uh, you want to feel good about yourself, right? So you make sure that you do what you should do to help people here on earth. I think, um, I think uh, Christine, Christine, you have any comments? She wants to say anything I need to touch on? <laughs> <laughs>